Well, hey, good morning. It is so good to see you. I'm really glad that you're here. Again, thank you, team, for leading us really well. And uh, like Nick said, I mean, I'm just very thankful uh, that we get to do this together, that we get to give together, worship together, study uh, God's Word together, step out in faith together. Like this, this series for me and our family has been really, really challenging in the most healthy of ways because it just stretched us. And so I remember uh, for us, like Lindsay and I, before uh, we had Lennon, our 16-month-old, we, uh, we had a hobby together, and we, I don't know how this came about in the first place, but uh, I think it's because I was getting overweight. She's like, we should run together. John, we should go for a run together. I was like, oh, okay, well, I don't know what you're saying. Like, I must have had an unhealthy relationship with little Miss Debbie, and she decided that we need to go for a run. So I was like, okay. So we started to go for runs together. We slowly built up. We're like, we should do a 5K. So we did a 5K race, and that was fun. We did a 10K race. That was fun. And she's like, John, I think I want to do a half marathon this fall. And I was like, okay, like how far is that? 13.1 miles. She's like, uh, okay. I said, okay, like I will, I love you. I will commit to you. I'll do whatever you ask. That sounds like a long time, like to be on my feet. That didn't sound necessarily comfortable in the moment. Anyway, so in a lapse of judgment, I also signed up for this half marathon up in St. Ignace, which is right across the, the bridge from Mackinac City thinking it was going to be beautiful, thinking it was going to be sunny, and it was. It was beautiful. It was sunny. We get there. Her mom and stepdad drive out from New York to celebrate this momentous occasion with us. The race gun goes off. We start. Everything is going well. By mile, like, two or three, I'm feeling like I'm a professional runner at this point, okay? Like, I'm, I'm popping gels, and I've got, like, a handheld water bottle at the time. I'm just, like, swigging it. I'm like every aid station, like volunteers are pouring Gatorade over my head. It's like I'm just feeling on top of the world as a runner. Mile five hits, I'm still feeling pretty good. Lindsay and I are together. We're talking. It's conversational pace. Things are going well. We eclipse the 6.2-mile mark, which is really the farthest we'd ever raced or uh, ran in a race before. We get creeping up to eight. We're still feeling pretty good. Things are going well. Mile 10, double digits. We're like, yes. We hit it. Even if I quit now, like I've, this is the farthest I've ever ran in a race before. We're feeling good. The sun is shining. It's getting warm, like just starting to get a good sweat. And then I see the finish line. I see this scene that you're looking at on the screen. I see this, and it obviously is pretty low fanfare. Like this is St. Ignace. This is up north. They're like, you'll figure it out. Like Just get to the finish line by some point. So it wasn't really well marked, but I could see where the finish line was. And I was starting to like realize, like, man, for running a half marathon, I feel good. I feel like I've got energy in the tank. Like I, I'm looking at Lindsay. She's powering through. Like she feels good. And, and we slowly get to that kind of pavement area, that parking lot you're seeing, and we just both sprint across the finish line. Like, yes, we did it. And you can see the moment literally in this picture where Lindsay looks down at her watch and realizes we have run a total of 12.1 miles instead of the half marathon's 13.1 miles. So as soon as she yells, she's like, John, we've only run 12 miles. Keep going. She's like, keep running. Like, we're not going to stop. We're way too try hard of a couple uh, to just stop at 12.1. We're like, okay, I guess we got to run. So we're kind of running loops around the parking lot trying to make up this extra mile. And what what I thought was like a great victory. I was like, man, I really ran 12 miles or 13 miles pretty fast because I had skipped a mile, kind of slowly deflated me. And I was like, 
oh, shoot, like, what happened? What did we miss? And so we get to the, the finish line. They hand us the kind of obligatory, celebratory banana. We eat that. We're sitting there, sitting around with our, our newfound victors, and, and they're like, we felt good. Like, we're hearing this chatter at the finish line, like people talking about, like, I, I felt way better. Like, I've run a half marathon before. That one felt way better. And we're all like, yeah, because you ran 12.1 miles. You ran a whole mile less than you were supposed to. And so slowly the race director makes his way over. Volunteers come over, and it's like, I, I, I look at my watch. I've got 12.1 miles. Lindsay's got 12.1. Other runners had 12.1 miles, and we're trying to figure this out. Well, the, the chatter kind of spreads throughout the parking lot, and I come to find out the lead runner, the guy who probably runs for a living, took off and eventually down the road missed a critical turn, which added a loop of a mile and through this neighborhood and back onto the course because they had missed some markings or something. And, and we eventually took this guy and just beat him. No, I'm just kidding. We didn't. Took his shoes and his watch. But we, we were like amazed that that had just been the thing like literally every runner after him was looking ahead to find the lead runner and you're kind of following along and just enjoying the sunshine and we didn't fully run the race what I find really interesting I've looked at my own life I've even looked at my spiritual journey thus far the last 12 years and found out something you already know that who leads you matters who leads you matters who leads you spiritually matters like who is in leadership of your life every decision you make really matters. But here's what I know. Most of us are completely unaware of the forces shaping our thoughts, shaping our decisions, guiding our moves and our purchases and our, our answers and solutions, influencing us about how we should live life, how we should dress, how we should look, how we should spend money. I mean, everything. There's so much of our lives we are led, but we're completely unaware by how we're being led and who we're being led by. And this tension that maybe you sit with just like I do is a tension that you can literally see in the story of God's people in Israel. You can literally watch this take place. If you read the book of Exodus, you can see that as soon as they get enslaved in Egypt, they start to grumble and complain. There's murder. They're doing hard labor. They're working. They're not enjoying it. Finally, God sets his people free. We just sang this a few minutes ago. Like God literally takes him through the, this massive Red Sea. He crashes it over the Egyptian shoulder, soldiers. It's an amazing moment for Israel. Like they are free. But scholars would say they, it was a certain amount of time it took to get Israel out of Egypt, much longer time to get Egypt out of Israel. And they face this tension of who is going to lead us, who's going to take us forward. And God sets up, in the midst of that tension, a tent. He sets up a tent, literally outside of the camp where Israel's meeting and gathering and living and, and doing life together. He sets up this place, eventually come to be, uh, which came to be called the tabernacle. And right at the end of this Exodus story, we see Moses finishing the job, finishing the commandments God had placed on him as a leader for Israel to set up a, a dwelling place for God's presence to host his glory if you read with me in uh, Exodus 40, we're going to start in verse 33 and just read the last couple verses. So if you have a device or, or physical Bible, pull that out. Let's read together. This is what it says. Moses is, is setting this up. And in verse 33, here's what we read. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain 
at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. He finished what God had set out for him. He said, set up a tabernacle for the Israelites. I'm going to lead them by my presence. He does it. He finishes the job. Punch list is all checked off. Verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting or the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It filled that place. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Some of you have done house projects or been in contractor situations. I mean, that's a pretty rare occurrence. You finish the punch list, you're leaving the job site, and boom, God's glory just falls on that house or, or, or that project or that brand new kitchen. I mean, that, that's never happened to me. That's literally for Israel. They're watching us. They're like, you just finished that tent thing, and now, boom, God's glory is falling. There's a heaviness and a thickness to it right before our eyes. But why this strikes me, why this moment is so critical in the life of Israel is actually a conversation that happens between Moses and God seven chapters earlier. We read this right at the beginning of the series, Exodus 33. Uh, I feel like I have bold moments as a leader. This is a really bold moment for Moses because God says, I'm going to take you into the promised land. You're set free from Egypt. I've taken out your enemies. I'm going to set you on a path to get to the place I want you to go. It's kind of this restoration of Eden place where I'm going to provide for you and walk with you in relationship. And so they're like, great, sign us up. Israel's on board. And they become really, really annoying to God. They become what he described as stiff-necked. They were stubborn. They're worshiping other gods. They've got eyes looking to other nations like, why don't we have that? Why can't we do this? He's saying, here's my commandments. Here's my guidelines. And they constantly are stepping outside of those boundaries. And so God says, okay, here's the deal. 33 chapters into the story, I'm going to take you into the promised land. I will, but I'm not going with you myself. I'm going to send an angel or some kind of messenger, and he or she will lead you into the promised land. Is that good with you? Now, if I'm Moses, if I'm Israel, yeah, that's fine. I mean, I just want to get to the promised land. What's wrong with that? Like, I don't care how I get there. I just want to get to that destination. But Moses does something, like I said, really, really bold. He literally looks at God in this, tent of me, in this kind of interaction, and literally says, I heard what you said, Lord. No, no, I, I don't want to do that. Which again, if, if I'm literally being led by pillars of fire and clouds, that's the last thing I'm saying to that. You know, like, no, I actually don't want to do what you said. And boom, like Moses slash John is dead in that moment. Like that's, that's what you're expecting to happen in the story. But Moses literally pleads with God. He is, he is bold before God, and he says in that conversation, I don't want an angel, I don't want a messenger, I don't want an LED wall, I don't want fancy TVs, I don't want a chair, I don't want an amazing center kids ministry, I don't want powerful worship sets, I want you. I want you to go with me, I want your presence, or else how will people know that we are marked by you? How will people know that you are the most important thing? How will they know that your favor and blessing is on us as a nation unless you go with us? Moses literally says that. He declares, I want your presence. And what happens after that conversation and after what we read in Exodus 40 is we see literally four decades in a row of Israel being led by the tangible presence of the Lord. Pillars of cloud, pillars of fire. It's this moment where they see their future. Now, if you're an Israelite, I mean, that sounds great sitting here. It's like, man, I'd love that. If God would just show up in my life. I just prayed for more of him, and boom, and my house was a pillar of cloud or fire, and I'm like, 
I'm just following where that thing goes. Like, I'm just walking, I'm following him wherever he leads. That would be great. But for Israel, their understanding of God being a little bit incomplete compared to how we can understand God now, they're literally thinking, like, we are going to die. <laughs> like, like, the goal for the Israelites in those 40 years was make it out alive. Make sure our kids don't cuss. Make sure we don't catch anybody smoking outside the tabernacle. Like, we want to be legally just perfect in God's eyes so that he will not kill us. Like, we, we are terrified of this God who shows up in, in clouds and in fire. But God's desire, which you see in Exodus, is he wants to lead them into the promised land. Like, he's not coming at it from a place of condemnation or being a heavy-handed kind of cosmic dictator. He, he longs for them to have the promised land experience. But here's what I think. I'm not God, so I don't know. But here's what I think, reading Exodus, is that God's deepest desire was actually unmet in the tabernacle. God's deepest yearning, his longing, was actually unmet in the tabernacle. See, God didn't want to just kind of dwell around his people. He didn't want them to drive down Byron Center Avenue to see, like, oh, there's a church, or, oh, there's a small group, or, oh, there's a soup kit. Like, he didn't want to just be around his people. God's deepest desire was to be with them, to be dwelling in their lives, in their soul. He wanted to be dwelling within his people. Another way to put it, and you've already seen, like God doesn't want to just love you. He wants to lead you. And I hope that today that's good news because God does not just stop the journey at the cross. Like, oh, your sins are covered. I love you. You're rescued from sin. All the things we sing, you're free now. Have a good life. Like, that's not the story of the scriptures. The story of the scriptures is God wanting to be involved in every single minute of every single day because he does love you. But more than that, he wants to actually lead your life to more. Lead your life to something supernatural, something bigger and, and brighter and bolder than you would drum up on your own. He, he doesn't want you to just lead yourself. He doesn't want you to just try to figure out your own path. He wants to lead you. Now, the obvious second question would be, how does God lead us today? Like, if it's not a cloud, if it's not this massive pillar of fire, if we're not setting up tents outside of center church and trying to hope that God's glory fills those, like, what are we supposed to do? Well, Jesus gives us clues. He teaches us in the New Testament what this actually looks like. There's not a cloud, there's not a pillar of fire, but there is a wind. In John 3, literally, Jesus is having this conversation with religious elite guy named Nicodemus. Nicodemus literally sneaks out of his house to go ask this rabbi some questions. I mean, this, that's a whole sermon by itself. But in that conversation, Jesus literally tells him, he says, the Holy Spirit, this renewing spirit is like, like the wind. It's hard to pinpoint like, hey, where did the wind start today? But you feel it. You sense it. It changes the atmosphere. You know something's different when it's windy. And Jesus is saying, that's what my spirit is like. My renewed, empowering presence in your life is like that. It's like, where did that come from? I know he's here, but I don't know. Like, I didn't, I didn't conjure him up. Like, he's just here. He's leading. That, that's the kind of relationship Jesus envisioned us having with the Holy Spirit. But can I let you in on a little tension I face? Maybe you felt this, but maybe I'm the only one. Most days... I find myself leading the Spirit instead of the Spirit leading me. Most days, I find myself 
running ahead and saying, God, if you want to join, I'm up here. Instead of the Spirit leading me and guiding me and giving me wisdom and teaching me and helping me to discern where I should go. I mean, I've, I've seen this. I mean, multiple years of being able to be a part of Center Church. Amazing place, amazing community. I've had conversations over the years. People who make, uh, for example, significant financial decision. Let's say a house. Uh, this housing market is just so great right now. It's just super easy to find a house. So let's say that, I'm just kidding, that was sarcasm. Uh, my brother and sister-in-law on the opposite side of trying to find a house right now, and, and it's a painful couple months for them. Like, they're in this journey. But I've had conversations with people who will say things like, well, I did the inspection. It looks good. Uh, I, the, the HVAC is updated. I feel good about that. The roof, the roof is nice. Uh, I love the, the yard. Like, there's only one little dandelion weed out there. I mean, it, it's perfect. Uh, I can afford it. It fits within my financial means. It's a, it's a good school district, or, or it's a good upgrade. We're about to have more kids. It's going to give us some more, some more space, some more opportunity to, to build our family. And those categories are not wrong. There's a lot of great things that you should do all those things. You should be wise in making significant financial purchases. But the question would be, do we ever ask, does God want me to have this house? Like, is the Holy Spirit leading us to make this big financial decision? That should be the first question we ask, not the afterthought. But what happens is we begin to lead ourselves. I'm just going to do life. I know how to schedule inspections. I know how to do mortgage stuff. I know, like we go through in our minds all the things that we can do, forgetting that maybe the most important factor is, does God want me to be in this house? Is this a move that, that our family needs to make? Is, is the Holy Spirit empowering us for this kind of move? A second one is in jobs. We do this all the time. Man, I remember a specific conversation three or four years ago, talking with a guy in our church, and he was going from uh, one construction company to the next. And he's like, I really want an objective lens. Someone who doesn't know anything about construction. John, can you talk? Like, come on, man. Like, I know how to pick a hammer out of a toolbox. That's about all. But so we set up this phone call. We're talking back and forth. And he's like, so what are you kind of wrestling through, I asked. Well, I mean, here's the, let me just give you the comparison. Here's the retirement package at this place, the retirement one at this one. Obviously, the next one's better. I said, okay, what else? What are some other factors in this decision? He says, well, it's more flexibility on the weekend. There ought to be as many job sites. Like, I, I've got some, some flexibility in my schedule. I can work from home sometimes. Like, it's just, there's a lot more flexibility. I said, that's great. What other factors are there? He's like, well, I mean, to be honest, like it's more pay and it's a little bit less responsibility than I have right now. It's kind of just like a win-win all around. And he said, what, else, what, what are you thinking? I said, I think a great question to ask is, does God want me to take this job or not? And I think he'll answer. Like, does, is this something, I mean, all those factors, helpful to think through. You should factor those things in. But does the Holy Spirit, is he, do you sense he's leading you to take that another job? that other thing, that other opportunity. And we got to talk about that. We got to pray through that. And it ended up being the right thing for him. But, but there is so much inherent danger, friends, in leading ourselves. We're often completely oblivious to it. Like for me, if I, I notice in my life, maybe you journal or you do, do introspection or you've been to counseling before where you kind of look back on some of the things in your life. And, and I've done all three of those different things recently. 
And the one thing I've noticed is that the danger of leading myself is I tend to lower my expectations of what God can do in my life. Because I tend to say, again, I'm inviting him in. They're saying, you can join me instead of saying, I want to go with you. I want your presence. What ends up happening is when there's a situation in my life that feels too big for me, I just get stressed. Or I just go out to eat. Or I just sit on the couch and want, I just get passive and withdraw because I'm leading myself. And that's how John would do it. If I face a moment or we're facing a moment in marriage where it's like, man, we've got some difficult stuff we need to power through. We need to get some resolution or, or marriage is just not going well in this season. Like, we need some help to figure it out. If I'm leading myself, I'm perfectly content with just having a bad marriage as long as we don't blow it up. Like, well, it just can be bad. Like, this is what it is. God can't really do anything in our marriage. We're just kind of there. We just settle. We lower, 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 lower expectations. I find the same, again, this may be you too, but I find this happens with sin in my life. Like the stuff I know I shouldn't do that I still do, the, the thoughts that I let linger, the things I dwell on, the things I put my trust in that I know are not beneficial, I know are not helpful, I know are not God-honoring. When I'm leading myself, my vision for overcoming sin is just keep it managed. You don't need to get it transformed. You don't need to confess it. Just keep it over here. It's kind of like a bank account. Don't let it get too bad. Like you manage it, you steward it. And I, and I buy into a gospel of sin management rather than transformation in Jesus, which is what we're here for. That's what we're talking about. The third area I always see this come up is, is in my relationships with other people. Like if I'm leading myself, I'm not letting the Holy Spirit lead, I'm leading myself. John is king of his world. What ends up happening is kind of like tentacles. You ever seen like those octopus that just go cra- like in the ocean? They're just expanding. They can grab multiple things at one time. That's kind of like my life when it comes to relationships, when I'm leading myself, I've got all these kind of sinful tentacles out there. I've got one relationship. Maybe I, I read an email wrong, and I'm just I'm ticked at that person. They don't even know I'm mad. I'm just mad at them. Maybe my parents did something I disagree with, or my siblings do something, and I'm kind of low-key just aggravated at them. Got someone in my life maybe who hurt me in the past or said a criticizing word and never came back around, never apologized. I'm just holding resentment, holding bitterness over them. When I see them, I just kind of like bristle. I don't want to be near them. Maybe Lindsay said something or did something I thought was out of bounds, and, and rather than address it and confront it and make peace, I just kind of, I'm sarcastic or I get passive aggressive with her or Lennon. I take it out on other people, even though she's kind of the person I should deal. I've got all these relationship tentacles out there that prove to me, John, you're leading yourself. Because when the Holy Spirit leads you, you naturally naturally want to forgive. You naturally want to reconcile. You naturally see yourselves not as just a peacekeeper, but a peacemaker. You're the one who steps in. You're the one when, when the marriage is bad to say, we, we can do this. We can figure this out. Let's go to God. Let's go to counseling. Let's, let's step in. I notice that in my own life. And the fourth area is one that Nick already brought up. I see this. Lindsay and I have talked about this. When, when we tend to be leading ourselves and we become inward bent, what happens is, our money and our time become ours. They're mine. And when God asks for my money and he asks for my time, I'm very guarded. Uh, uh, don't do that. I don't, I don't have any margin this month. 
don't do that. I've got a lot of things on my calendar. Do not ask me to go to that prayer thing. Don't ask me to join that small group. Don't ask me to sign up for that event or serve here or give here. Don't ask me. I just don't have room. I don't have the space. And when I lead myself, I am incredibly hoarder-centric. Like our first house, we lived down the street from a lady who was on TLC's show, Hoarders. And every time I drove by her house, I'm like, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that. And spiritually, I can be that. I just, I want to keep things to myself. I want to hoard them in instead of letting God use me as a channel for generosity and blessing and giving freely, sacrificing my time for other people and for the kingdom of God. See, if you read the Gospels for five minutes, you see that Jesus, every single major decision, every single major move spends time with God. It's literally a rhythm of his life. He gets away. He withdraws. He, he takes time with the Spirit. Very early in the Gospels, you see this, I think it's in Mark, where literally the, the wording is the Spirit compelled Jesus into the wilderness. Compelled is like a pleading, begging, like you gotta go. And Jesus goes. Jesus had a relationship with the Holy Spirit. He was literally listening. What does God want? What is his will in this situation? And he was responding accordingly. And one of the, the passages that just stops me in my tracks is in the very last moments of Jesus' life. The Gospel of John. If you have a Bible, we'll throw the reference up there. John 14, verse 15. Listen to what he says. John 14, in verse 15, they're literally gathered in this upper room. Jesus, is, the time is ticking for him to get to the cross, for him to sacrifice his life, to, to give himself up for these disciples. They're gathered around having this meal. Listen to what he says in some of these final moments with them. If you love me, keep my commands, which is just a perfect formula for religion. If you love God, be morally perfect. But there's more. Jesus is not just saying, if you really love me, then you should have a perfect moral record. That's not what Jesus is saying. Listen to what he says right after this. And, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, talking about the Holy Spirit, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he lives with you and will be in you. Jesus is not saying, if you love me, you would just be morally perfect. You would have a good record. You wouldn't sin. You would manage it. You wouldn't, you wouldn't truly confess it. You just wouldn't even need to. It's like you'd just be flawless, spotless. If you love me, you keep my commands. He's saying, literally, it's from a place of love. I give you the spirit to help you keep my commands. I give you the spirit to empower you to live a different life and to be led by something other than yourself, to not make you the king of your own life, to get you off the throne and put Jesus back. That's literally what he's saying in this, and I think it's so fascinating. You dig into some of the, the Greek wording here, the, the words the authors choose in John is so intentional and specific. Literally, I read this verse, and I would say, I'll ask the Father to give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. Another advocate, in my mind, another, growing up speaking English, would be a different one, different kind, different category. But Jesus is not saying that. The Greek word he uses here is very on purpose, that, that John uses here is very on purpose. He says, I will give you another one the same as me. 
That's almost perfect translation. Another one, the same as me. And Jesus is saying, when you know the Holy Spirit, you know the heart of God. When you know the Holy Spirit, you know the Father's heart. When you know the Holy Spirit, you know what Jesus wants for you. You don't need a pillar of fire. You don't need a cloud. You can know this is what God is directing me to do, and I'm going to obey. I'm going to follow him. That's why when you fast forward in the gospel or in the New Testament, you read stories in Acts. I mean, Acts is literally just kind of depictions, biographical accounts of what Jesus did through the early church and how things just launched as soon as he ascends in heaven and the Spirit descends into, into everyday people. But they're gathered in this upper room, the same one likely that they had the final meal of what we just read. They're gathered there. They're there for the Feast of Pentecost. They're together, and they are praying and literally seeking God's presence. They're not doing much. They're just there. They're not strategizing. They're not talking about the next church plant. They're not talking about what, how do we discern what Jesus said about bread. And all. Like they're not talking about those things. They're literally sitting in a room, praying, seeking God's presence. And what happens is, Scripture literally says in Acts 2, that tongues of fire fall upon these people, ordinary people like you and me, fall on them, and they begin to speak and are empowered and unleashed. Eventually, the church literally grows by thousands in that same week. I mean, this is like a church growth story like you've never seen. It is just the Holy Spirit taking over and, and driving the mission forward. They're not led by a pillar of fire. What happens is they receive the fire of God for themselves. It's this Holy Spirit-inspired moment. It's incredible. The church is launched. And it reminds me, Samuel Chadwick, kind of this old-school Wesleyan Methodist minister puts it this way, that destitute of the fire of God, nothing else counts. But possessing fire, nothing else matters. Destitute of the fire of God, like when your life is gripped when your life is marked and led by the Holy Spirit, friends, nothing else matters. But when you're missing that leadership, when you are trying to lead yourself and make it happen on your own and, and perform your way into God's presence, what ends up happening is your life begins to not even count. Nothing else counts. Like when you're missing that, like your marriage can only go so far. Your relationships can only go so far. Your church, our church will only be able to go so far. Like you can fool people for a while, but death to do the fire of God. Chadwick points out nothing else counts. What strikes me is that the Acts 2 church, the church you and I read about, it's like, man, I'd love to be there for that. They did not base their discipleship off New Testament letters. They're not sitting around like, dude, there's going to be a series on Ephesians. I should invite all of my friends to come to that series. Like they have a bounce house. They have hot dogs. We should go do that. Like they're launching a new series. Welcome Home Sunday part two. Like they don't have that. They're not saying, dude, what just changed my life was I didn't really understand the specific thing about the love of God. I went to this wedding. We read 1 Corinthians 13. It's like, boom, I totally understand the love of God. Like they don't have any Paul is not even a Christian in Acts 2. And you know what happens? They don't have any of that, but what they do have matters. They have the leadership and direction of the Holy Spirit. They relied completely on the Holy Spirit to lead and to transform and to change them. They carried the fire. And the question for us, that I think just lingers over us, is so where is God going before us as a church? Like, what is he saying to us? What is he stirring us towards? What is he 
kind of leading us by his Holy Spirit to do and to accomplish and to achieve for his kingdom. And that's actually a question for the last I don't know, six, eight months, almost a year probably, that I've just wrestled with. Like I'm curious about because I want more of the Holy Spirit to lead in my life. So I'm asking that question, God, where are you going? Where are you going? This is not about John's grand vision for Center Church. I'm really just trying to be a great listener. Say, God, what do you want us to do? And as I've listened, as we've discerned with just a bunch of people, advisory teams, spiritual leaders in our church, there's really three convictions that start to bubble up for me. And they become they became way more crystal clarified like over the summer and even in the fall. I'm going to whet your appetite and leave you wanting more because there's no way I could go deep into all these. But I'm going to give you the three convictions that, we're, that we want to carry into the future and double down on. The first is just rising leaders. Like God has put us in a position as a church to equip the next generation of ministry leaders, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. Like half our staff is in college. I love that. I think that's a gift. Like we care about the next generation. We're in, we're in two services because we have so many kids, we could not even physically fit them in one service. Like, like that, that's one of the main reasons that we had to do this. It was to create space for, for our kids and for our next generation to be there. I think about stories like uh, Jen Rubick. Some of you know Jen. Jen stepped in as our kids director at the end of July. Uh, Jen is a full-time mom. I mean, she's got four little kids. Her husband works full-time as a pharmacist. Like, Jen was not sitting around one day like, oh, man, I just, I don't have enough to do. You know, like, I just need more to do. I, I feel, I've just got too much energy at the end of the day. Like, I, I know Jen, she has never said that. I've got one kid, I don't ever say that. Like, I can't even imagine. But she sensed back in December the Holy Spirit leading her. Someone actually sent her a text message saying, I believe that God is raising you up to serve with kids someday. I don't know if you're going to be a teacher or what that's going to be, but you just should and she kept that close. She was listening. Fast forward to January. Fast forward to March. We began having conversations. We know there's going to be a transition. And Jen didn't raise her hand and say, I want to do it. I want to do it. Like the Holy Spirit just affirmed it. It was like a deep resonance with her to say, I think I'm built for that. I think I'm supposed to do that. Like I think I need to step outside of what's comfortable and sacrifice my schedule so that kids can know God. I think that's, that's me. And that's what we're talking about. The second is being focused, really, really focused on discipleship. And all that means, like Dallas Willard, psychologist, puts it this way. He literally says, like, we have a pandemic in the church of undiscipled disciples. Like, there's areas in my life where I'm like, I signed up to be a Christian. I didn't quite yet sign up to be a disciple there. Like, some of those I already shared. And you may have areas of your life, corners of your heart, that, that that's what it is, like, I'm a Christian here, but I'm not quite a disciple. I haven't really surrendered that or let the Holy Spirit lead me in that place. And whether it's groups or we're launching this core thing, Nick will talk about that more later um, in the next couple of weeks, just to try, like to push ourselves to try to say it matters what we believe. It matters if we're growing. It matters if we're stepping into spiritual maturity. It matters that we have more of a hunger and thirst for God in our life. Like those things, they matter. We're not here just for status quo. But the third area, I put it last because it really does drive everything else that we're talking about. And if I had to like just pick one, this would be the one. But, but our leaders and myself have just sensed a growing hunger and thirst to see, almost like the tabernacle, a tangible atmosphere of the presence of God in our midst. That's not just Sunday morning. That, that's, 
in the garbage truck. That's, that's working on the car. That's dropping the kids off. That's making the sale. That's visiting the, the account or the client. That, that's in every single area of your life, there would be a tangibleness. There'd be almost like a heaviness or a thickness to knowing God is with me. God is here. And obviously, that, that matters in this gathering. We, we pray for that every single weekend, that, that you would know God is in this place. But that tangible atmosphere starts to shift every single thing that we do, all the things we just talked about. And again, we'll talk about them more later. But can I give you the kicker to all of this? Can I give you the sticking point for this? Is a church is led by the Holy Spirit, which is what we are just talking about, when we decide to let him lead us. And I really believe that. A church is not led just when the pastor says, I want more of God, or I want more of the Holy Spirit. It has to start there. Leaders go first. I want it to start with me. But eventually, all of us, if you follow Jesus, or you're even asking questions, and you're like, I'm not sure where I am, or maybe you follow Jesus for decades. All of us, it's on us to decide, will we let him lead us? Will we let him take us into the future together? And to be honest, this last year for me has just been a time to realize, I want more. I want more. I do not want to be content with checking the box Christian on some consensus form and that's all my faith becomes. I want to be something where every decision, every moment, every tense moment, every celebration moment, I want it to be marked by the Holy Spirit, by the presence of God at work in my life. Because friends, if, if you know me, and I would say this about myself, I'm pretty good at leading myself. I'm organized show up on time I'm ready for stuff I, I can I can perform I, I can be composed in tough situations but that's not following Jesus following Jesus is saying I don't want to lead myself I don't want to just be disciplined I want to be led by the Holy Spirit I want something much more and so I wonder I mean the, the question lingers over you and over me do you want more do we want more I wonder today, too, just kind of an act of stepping out. Like, if you say, today, I'm here, I'm online, I'm asking questions, or maybe you followed God for a long time. If you just slip up your hand and say, I would want more of God's presence in my life. If he was willing to give it, I'd take more. Anybody? Yeah. Just want more. Like, that. that's where I'm at. Like, I want more. And so we're going to actually step in. Uh, Peter's going to lead us in the song, Fresh Wind, we sang earlier. And together, we're just going to seek after more because that's how you get it. <laughs> like, like the lesson of, of getting more of God in your life is just to let him know he's wanted. He's wanted. He's at the door. He's knocking. He's seeking. But are you going to open it? Are you going to let him in? Like that, that's the big question. Do you want more? Resolves in if you're asking for more. So here's what we're going to do. We've got some people in our prayer team we've set aside. I'm going to actually invite you to stand up now. We're going to sing together. So go ahead, stand up, stretch out. And we're going to take a few minutes just as we close our time together and just seeking after more. And we're going to ask some people on our prayer team. We literally, if you've never been here, this wouldn't be, you wouldn't know. But like together, we've set some more space in the front than we normally do so that we could have some space to, to be kind of prayerful together. And we've got people on our prayer team who I know, I love, and I trust. They are prayerful people. But they're going to be up here in this front space, and they want to pray over you for more. 
here's what I know. If I ask, like, if you want to be prayed for, for just more of God in your life, there's people, you already raised your hand. It's like the ultimate spiritual bait and switch moment for me. Like, but for me, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be the first one to step down here. I'm asking, prayer team, would you pray for me? I want more of God. I want more, not just of God, but an awareness that he's here. He's with us. He's present. And if you raise your hand, if that's you, that strikes something. We have people in first service just just moved by the Holy Spirit to come forward. And we're going to take some time to pray together as they sing. And so you say, that's uncomfortable. That's too bold for me. Uh, Perfect. That is where God moves and does his best work when you don't feel like you're in control and you got everything figured out. So I'm going to step down. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask for them to pray over me. And I encourage you to do the same thing. So Peter, it's all yours. Let's sing. Let's worship. And uh, if you want to come forward for prayer just for more of God, now's your time.